calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving god, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. I'm so excited I got to get Sandy Marks for this episode. If you're listening, you have just tuned into Awkward Sex in the City with your host, Natalie Wall. Sandy Marks is fucking amazing. She has lived a life and just such a cool and inspiring person to be around and watch perform and get to talk to. And I'm so glad I finally got to get her on the podcast. And she even has a fucking documentary coming out about her life called The Fabulist, which is going through uh, basically the circuit right now, the uh, festival circuit. But the more that I know, I'll definitely let you guys know where to find it when we know more. But it's called The Fabulist. And just, again, an amazing storyteller. If you're in New York City, find her, watch her, obsess over her. It's a fun episode. And even there are hundreds of sexy girls there. They're gorgeous with long legs. They look like like ponies. And I look like Gollum, you know, wandering around like a little donkey. only introduce me to guys who have the potential to either run a small country or be (laughs) a captain of some kind of industry. Do not waste my time Uh with anyone who is too sensitive and starving. Yeah, I loved, you know, live shows are my jam. I love it. But um, I love doing podcasts too. Yeah, they're great. I was trying to explain to someone, they're just so good. There's such a less pressure to them in a way. Yeah, yeah, but they're still like as performative and but like that's right, almost more truthful and just I don't know. That's true because things come up when you're doing a podcast that you know that like when you're performing live and you're rerunning in your head like oh shit I left that out. Mm-hmm. But when you're doing a podcast, you're more relaxed. You're like oh wait a minute, there's one thing I really you know if you can stick this in, you can add it. Yeah, and because it just feels more personal, they're just to me they're always great. Oh yeah, and Same. I'm like I listen to them twenty. I'm always listening to podcasts so. I have a real appreciation. My favorite one is my favorite murder. I've heard good That's things. That's my addiction. 
I have not listened yet because I do have an addiction, addiction to true crime it's and oh, I too. just don't know if I need to go down that hole. But the reason you'll love it is because it's a comedy show. Yeah, I heard they're just like, they don't Karen take themselves Kilgariff, too serious. Not at all. Uh, they make mistakes. They'll they'll say inaccuracies and say, oopsie daisy, you know, I know mm-hmm. we're getting 20,000 mails about that. So <laughs> I like that because they don't raise the bar very high. Yeah. But it's so intriguing. My husband's into it now. As a matter of fact, I'm the feature subject of a documentary that's coming out and there's a scene i don't know if they kept it in but there's a scene of me driving and you can and i'm listening to my favorite murder and laughing like cackling about somebody getting murdered while i'm driving in the film is this documentary the one about uh what happened to you um it's actually it's why i why i am who i it's when i met the filmmaker i wasn't sick yet um i met the filmmaker at a show i was performing and he um he saw me and he approached me and he asked me if I would be willing to be the subject of a documentary. And at first I thought like, oh, this reminds me of my life back in the 80s. You know, this is, sounds very sleazy, <laughs> oh, which is sort of what my story's about. So I was like, hmm, do I want to do a documentary? And then he gave me his card and he said, do me a favor, vet me out. I'll send you my other films and uh-huh. find out who I am. And uh-huh. then we can talk and I'll make a proposal. And he was like very adult about it. It was uh-huh. like a proposal. So that next day or two days later, whenever I got around to it, I checked him out and he was like a Sundance winning director. And he had, he had this amazing film. And I was like, oh, he's he's really is a filmmaker. He isn't some creepy young dude who has a thing for older women. So we started working and we spent almost two years. Holy shit. He basically moved in. Like when you shoot a doc and you're the subject, you have to be willing to be let him be the fly on your wall, you know. Oh like, my God. so I was, my husband was involved because you know I, there was this one day when he was shooting in our apartment, and I heard my husband yelling, "Can I come out of the shower now?" Like he doesn't want the filmmaker seeing him without his clothes on. So, um, but so it started out being a film about a woman over a certain age. I'm 63. But I started performing at 59, which is a little unusual, especially mm-hmm. in New York. I didn't um, know. I thought you'd yeah. been performing longer for some reason. I thought like 10 well, I, years. No, no. I started out, well, actually, I started like five years ago. But I started out as an actress as a young person. Right. But um, I wasn't very good. And so I became a talent agent because that's what most talent agents are. They're not such great actors. I mean, sorry, talent agents out there. But most casting associates, talent agents, we had such a love for acting or performing. And then when got too hot in the kitchen or we realized we were, maybe we're not that great. Mm-hmm. We thought, well, what do I have a love for, a zest for that I could support other people doing? And I got super lucky because I happened to take a dance class with this actor, Peter Weller. I don't know if you know who that is, but he was RoboCop. Oh, I was, did not know this. He was the shit. But this is even before RoboCop. And he told me he wanted me to meet his agent. And I was like, oh, Peter Weller. So um, I thought, he thought I was like, you know, hot stuff. But he just thought I had a good personality and I should be a talent agent. Okay. So he introduced me to his agent. And I became an assistant at this agency called J. Michael Bloom, which is no longer around. And within like six or seven years, I had my own agency with three partners. We opened up our own shop which we ran for a very long time, called yeah. SEM&M. It's also not around anymore. And it was truly life-fulfilling, fabulous, miraculous life to live until it was, like, not so much anymore. Because yeah. it's, I mean, I have such a deep love and affinity for anyone who can act or be funny. We represented a lot of comedians. But at a certain point, it's like, oh, God, just shoot me. It's hard. It's really hard. It's like being everybody's nurse and mom and... And I, I had too many feelings for them. You know, it's just yeah. hard to be that sympathetic for that many years. And I wanted to 
kind of have a healthier, more balanced life, I guess. So yeah. I retired at a certain point, and I also had gotten sick because I had lupus, which was my thing. So luckily, you know, there's always a, like a silver lining. Having an illness is horrible, and you have to stop working because I just couldn't do it anymore. But I had this wonderful private disability insurance, which pays me until I'm 65 years old, basically my salary. Wow. So I was able to be home and not freak out that I had no money yeah. because I, you know, I wasn't really qualified to go back into that workforce mm -hmm. because I kind of aged out and I wasn't feeling so well. Um, but I was able to have other endeavors. And one of them was always being a creative writer and wanting to get back to my real lust, which was to be an actress. Um, and I really wanted to be a comedian when I was young, but I was, I just, did, I was such a pussy. I didn't have the balls to do it. Like, I just, there's no way. It's like also, I, I would assume, like, way hard. harder back then, too, because it's, it's way more female-friendly now. Absolutely. Like, it's still, there's obviously still, like, I mean, we had our it. We had role models, like, we had Carol Siskin, and we had uh, Rita Rudner, mm -hmm. um, and obviously Joan Rivers, and there were some wonderful comedians, as we had the extra N's and E's, but honestly, um, it was a man's world. I used to... I used to make fun of myself, which is applicable to the show, because I called myself a chuckle fucker. Do you know what that is? No. Okay, so a chuckle fucker is a young girl who might not have mild or no talent, um, but likes to laugh at other people's jokes and, and have sex with comedians. So I would date. I was a serial dater. I would date, <laughs> you know, whoever I thought was mildly talented. So I went through a string of comedians, and I'd hang out at the bar at the Improv or Catch a Rising Star, and I would listen to all their stupid stories they tell over the same fucked up stories over and comedians <laughs> like I don't know I don't think it's so much now anymore the competition is fiercer since there's so much like you know there's alternative comedy and all kinds of comedy so you got to be really on your game but back then you had your one strong set yep. I don't know six or seven minutes that was okay and they were all talking about getting their set ready for doing you know, originally Carson, I'm that old, but then, you know, also Letterman or whomever, mm -hmm. you know, because someone's going to come and see them at the catch. They got to have that strong five or six minutes. But if I had a, I had to date these guys, I had to hear that same fucked up set oh like God, every man. night for, and they would do what they called, I guess it's that hockey term where you do three shows a night. So a hat, hat trick, trick, right? Yeah. So, and they'd be like, oh, yeah, my hat trick. so you get jump in the cab with them before Uber, you're jumping in the cab and you're running from, you know, Chelsea to Upper East Side or downtown the West Side. So they could do the same Fakakta five minute set <laughs> that was never that funny, but, you know, different audiences. These were all tourists and like dates yeah. from Long, I Long Island. They'd come in and, you know, the waitresses, in you could see their disdain. It was <laughs> like when you go often enough to these clubs and you watch the waiters and waitresses who were mostly other performers or actors or like highly intelligent people that do not belong, you know, like dealing with these slobs that came in from Manhasset to see mm -hmm. comedy. You could see the, that, like that look on their face, like they want to just poison these people. Oh my because God. they, but they also have to hear the same fucked up five minutes also over, you know, and every once in a while, like I'm old enough, I watched like Andy Kaufman do a set. I watched these people do their sets. So every once in a while, you'd be like, holy shit, this is genius. But generally speaking, the guys I wished up in, they were just sort of okay. <laughs> I, I wasn't I wasn't a high class whore. I was just sort of a medium one. So, um, but that's what it was like. So anyway, but that said, it was a man's world. And I, you know, I was never going to be Carol Leifer. I wasn't a good enough writer. Mm -hmm. I wasn't brilliant enough. So at some point you have to be smart enough to be self, like really self-evolved enough to know, you know what? No, it's probably other ways for me to make a living. Because I also like money. 
I'm not a, I'm not embarrassed to like money. I didn't want to be broke my whole life. Yeah, money is beautiful. Money's As a broke comedian, I would love more. Yeah, I money is a be- money is something that nobody should be embarrassed about wanting. Yeah. And money is important. It buys you good shit. Yeah. Like a house or an apartment or a rental or and it gave me the ability to divorce my first husband. If I didn't have a lot of money, I couldn't have done that because he was a good guy. We didn't get along. We couldn't marry, stay married. But if I were one of those women who didn't have a job and was just home raising my kids, I don't know what I would have done. You'd been stuck. And I remember because you talked about yeah. your first husband on I, the, the the show that you, the, the awkward sex show that you did. And I remember, wasn't he like also? And we can totally cut this out. He like wasn't nice to you when it came to like sex. I feel like like yeah, he was not. Yeah. And that's like to be yeah. stuck in something like that would just be like. Well, he horrible. had this thing. I think I might have done it live on the show, which is hard to illustrate on a podcast. But he did this thing where if I went to kiss him, he put up his fingers to like sort of simulate lips, like "Don't kiss my face, kiss my hand instead." It's like that is so gross. It's like, what that's, does that mean? Yeah, what does that mean? I mean, it's not. It wasn't like I was sticking my tongue down his throat in the middle of the gap. It's like what? But he, I think it maybe was his waspy, very straight background uh. and no PDA or whatever. But he also, I'm sure, I told the story where when I was eight months pregnant with his big fat son in my belly and I bent over to pick something up and at that moment he asked me if I'd considered working out more because I had gotten so big. I was eight months pregnant. I wanted to like like chop his head off. I wanted to suffocate him like with a pillow in the middle of the night. Yeah. Or bob at him. But anyway, but that's fine. And we're you actually You would make a then. good bob it too. Like yeah. you'd have, you do have so much personality that the moment that And rage. Hit, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the moment you hit the newspapers, like everyone would like be on your side. That's right. There would be team bob it mm-hmm. with a hashtag. Oh yeah. I oh, would yeah. hope. But luckily my new husband of 20 years is Aww. so sweet. He Aww. lets me kiss him whenever I... I want and this unless this documentary like like and, world into his life. That's I yeah. love that. And he was so that. generous about being involved in it. And he, one of the most poignant scenes in the movie is him sitting in his office. He's a dentist crying. I was like, that's my husband. Aww. So and the only downside of that is when I've screened it for a few people, they say, well, you're really good in the movie, but your husband he gets the Academy Award. It's like fuck you, <laughs> it's my movie. But it is. It's all good, and the movie's done now, and now we have it at all the festivals. So okay, but ask festival where can we season. See this? Well, the festival season starts after the first of the year, as we all know, and okay. we don't know yet. So we're waiting for all of our rejections and then our acceptances. And well, then it'll be out there, so it'll you. be really good. So hopefully I'll step and repeat somewhere, I hope. We'll what see. is it called? It's yeah. called The Fabulist. The Fabulist. It okay. looks like it's spelled like The Fabulist, which he did on purpose, So because it's F-A-B-U-L-I-S-T rather than F-A-B-L-E. But it's really all about, is she a storyteller? Or wh- what's the story with this woman? Because it's very contrasting. Mm-hmm. I lived in a... We used to live at the Ritz-Carlton, so there's a lot of shooting at the Ritz. Like, so uh, during the day, I'm at the Ritz-Carlton, but at night, I'm at KGB walking for flights to, to the Red Room. To the Red Room, yeah. Or going down. At, I'm at Halliards or some wherever, Big Herbs, so these crazy bars. Um, and then, so the movie was originally shot. It wasn't really a short, but it was much shorter. And my filmmaker was a little concerned that he hadn't really found his like real tent pole or his real stakes, which mm-hmm. is we know is fit in film, you need to really have stakes. And then I got really sick yeah. and I was in the hospital with an emergency. Um, I lost a very large part of my large intestines over a foot because I had a torn bowel and I was very sick. And he was, I know, rubbing his hands because it was like, okay, now I have a story. <laughs> so when I had, I had to have a colostomy, which to me is worse than losing a leg. I'm sorry, but I'm sure a lot of people wouldn't feel that way, but for me it was, just my experience. Luckily it got reversed. I'm very lucky it was reversed. So uh-huh. I got my 
duty shoot back. And yeah. All, but there was a time there was really bad because I was performing while simultaneously taking a dump on stage. I mean, that's a unique experience. And can you feel it? Like, are you, you like, don't aware? feel it? There's no f- nerves in that stoma where you're actually shitting out of. Uh huh. But you know you are because it's like if you ever held a baby, you know when they filled up their diaper. Because I'm shitting, I was shitting in like a vacuum cleaner bag. So I'd be on stage in my leggings and a t-shirt and I'm doing my thing. And all of a sudden I feel myself getting heavier. Like that's the feeling. Ah. And then I knew, oh God, I got to go change this thing. But it's it's pretty grotesque. So yeah, I mean, it is a unique skill set to be uh-huh. able to simultaneously take a shit and perform. I know, I was about to And say. make people laugh. I mean, that's superhero shit, but and it was shit. But I was very happy to have that reversed. reversed. And the director filmed the whole aftermath. He was at the hospital like 12 hours after the surgery. He And then he was so happy because he says, okay, now we have a really good film. I was like, um, I said to him recently, once we started submitting, I said, I hope you don't think I plan on getting sick again because we're not doing like part of this thing. Of the do. The like, do. This is just one docu-do, not two. Yeah, yeah. So now we just have to wait and hope and um, we'll see. So whatever it is, I, you know, every day to me is, you know, great, fun. Aw, yeah. I love that. Yeah. I think perspective is important as you get older. You can look back, but she's really, it's better to look ahead and think about all the fun shit you haven't done yet, rather than all the good stuff that might have happened when you did something. Because, you know, even like in my 30s, like I'm only 31 and I can already catch myself looking back being like, did I do enough in my 20s? Am I doing enough right now? And it can be so, well, it's so stupid, but so overwhelming. That's in right. In a lot of ways, it's just like, ugh. I think the important lesson, I, I have two 30-year-old twin daughters, and I they're turning 31 next month. And I always tell them that, you know, don't have an expectation that's going to disappoint you so much that you think that means you failed. You know, you can set your bar high, but whatever experiences you're having, those are the ones you're supposed to be having. And they're all leading to something next that's going to be the next great experience. Aww. You can't look back and think, like, if I should have, would have. Because, you know, and I always tell them that the 20s kind of suck. You know, the 30s and the 40s are so much better. Yeah. After 35, amazing. You know, after 30, you know, when you stop putting the pressure on yourself that you were supposed to do something by a certain age, like, you know, sell by date, it doesn't work that way, you know. And I'm I'm definitely, definitely like a great example of having my best life experiences after 50. So, yeah. you know, it's just... You know, you can have a traditional life and try to please other people, but it's much better to just keep going, looking forward at all the fun experiences you don't even know you're going to have yet. Yeah. You have no idea. And I always tell other comedians and storytellers, just show up. Like, I wouldn't have had that movie made if I didn't just show up. It was a tiny show at the yard, that workspace. You know, where people like we work, it's called The Yard. And it was a small show. I did a favor for a friend, my friend Dawn Frazier, who's wonderful. She said, would you come and tell a story? She had apparently had a class there, a workshop teaching storytelling, and she just wanted a couple of people who do it all the time to show up. And that's how it happened. I met this guy, Frank. But if I were too busy or lazy or whatever and wasn't convenient, then, you know, a year later I wouldn't be telling you that I'm hoping not to fail and being rejected in a movie, which is, you know... But you have to have perspective. I love it. Perspective. Yep. yep. Um, I know you have a really good story. Yeah. I, are, are you ready? Are yes. You ready? Okay, cool. Yes. I love it. I hope your audience doesn't really hate me. Oh, my God. No. <laughs> Believe me. Oh, my God. They're going to love you. All right. So first of all, so your audience already is aware, I'm 
Old er. Older. Older. Yeah, I'm from a different generation. I don't know. It's New York. So, I feel like there's no age in New yeah, York. Yeah. And I'm I've always been a New Yorker. So mm-hmm. when I was in my, you know, early twenties, mid twenties, if you went to a party back then and if a dude and he could be gross, he could be like ninety years old, and if he said to you, My, you really look fuckable, okay, that was a very popular expression. This wasn't an insult back then. Okay. Yeah. Like we weren't like thinking, oh, that's disgusting. Get away from it. No, we were like, oh, thank you. You know, like, because we were, it was a very promiscuous time. And to us, like, translating fuckable means you're cute. It doesn't mean, it was nothing negative about uh-huh, it. Uh-huh. But it was also a time where it was like, it was before AIDS. We were only worried about herpes, basically. Okay. So, like, I definitely remember, thank God my mom's dead, so she doesn't have to hear this. I remember, she'd be rolling around in her grave. I once got locked <laughs> out of my apartment on the Upper West Side. And this guy in the lobby overheard me say that I was locked out. So what do I do? I go have sex with him in his apartment while I'm waiting for my roommate to get home. Because this is like, we did this shit. Like I would go on the elevator in that building on 86th Street and I would be on the elevator with three guys I had sex with within like the last month on the elevator. And that's what we, nobody, we did not think about it. None of us. Nobody thought about it. People were having sex in bathrooms all the time. It wasn't like you had to go to some after hours club. You could have sex in the bathroom at like Maxwell's Plum at seven o'clock at night. Like that's what people did. Okay. So. Yeah. It sounds great. It sounds consensual. It was good. It It was consensual. It was fun. We were worried about herpes. That was a big thing. Uh But we weren't worried. It was like past that syphilis era. Okay. We weren't getting gonorrhea. Okay. But AIDS wasn't a thing yet. It was Uh like 82, 81, 82. So, and I was also still an actor. And Uh I must have had a really inflated view of myself because I um, had this like fantasy that I was going to be discovered by some wealthy, powerful producer or director who would be like, I was like, my favorite movie was Funny Girl. Did you ever see that movie? Mm-hmm. Okay. So I was gonna, I was Fanny Bryce, but attractive, really attractive with a, like a really like, um, she had a beautiful bosom, if you remember, creamy bosom uh-huh. in those um, pure dresses, right? And a lot of hair. And I never had nails, but I still, it was going to be Babs Streisand. And I was going to meet my Nikki Arnstein. Mm-hmm. And he was going to make me rich and famous. That was like my thing. And the casting couch thing wasn't a fable that was real, except we weren't really fucking dudes on couches. We were like making them buy us dinner and then going back to their apartments. Okay, uh-huh. So it wasn't their couch. It was maybe a hide a bed at home, but it wasn't really a couch. <laughs> so, you know, you kind of like you weed them out, right? So during this era, there was an actor strike. And I was a young actress, which is really like not appropriately describing me. I was a student of acting because nobody was hiring me. Okay, uh-huh. But I labeled myself an actress and a dancer. So during the strike, there was an ad in Backstage Magazine, which was our paper of record if you were a performer. It's before the interweb. Mm-hmm. So if you wanted to go to on an audition and you didn't have an agent, mm-hmm. you had to open up like the 12th page and backstage and find. So there were all these non-union auditions because the actors, the real actors were on strike. And because I had no morals or, you know, compass, moral compass, it didn't occur to me that maybe it wasn't a good thing to audition for a non-union gig, which now I certainly would never after being part of that community for so long. But back then, I was young and stupid. Yeah, you just said no. And I was like, whatever. And I never really thought things through anyway. So there was an ad for Haynes Pantyhose is looking for models and actors for a commercial because they can't use union talent. And because I had this inflated view, inflated view, I thought, oh, this is perfect. Now, people who are listening who don't know me, you can uh, uh, ascribe that I am five feet two, 
and I have the legs of a nine-year-old boy. And <laughs> Same. They look like they might have suffered polio because there's like no muscle tone. So <laughs> I'm not like looking at your legs. So the like- idea, there's like very gnarly. The idea even back then when I was in my Dewey Prime, that these were legs that any like control top or any kind of pantyhose, sandal foot, no, it wasn't. But I go and I dress the part because I'm going to nail this. And I wore like fishnets and hot pants or a tight skirt. Apparently I have no like full length mirror at home because I know I look like Jodie Foster in Taxi Driver. You know, I'm like... Tarted up, and I, I was not good looking. At all. I mean, really, as kind of mis, my mother would say, miskite, which is Jewish for you'll get better when you get older. So I couldn't afford any plastic surgery. So I show up, and it is there are hundreds of sexy girls there. They're gorgeous with long legs, they look like, like, like ponies, and I look like Gollum, you know, wandering around like a little donkey. <laughs> but I still look like, oh, I'm gonna book this job. And then the door opens, and the, the casting assistant brings me in, and I see the casting director, he's behind a big desk. And he's really cute. He's got big brown eyes. And he's little. And the reason I know he's little is because I don't think his feet were like grazing the ground behind the, <laughs> like, you know, like a small man. But I'm little. And I'm like, yes, I'm going to nail this guy. I'm going to have sex with this guy. And he's going to make me a star. Like, that was like the first thing I'm thinking about because that's my orientation. Because obviously I was a whore back then. And because he's so little, I think, oh, he'll vibe with me. I know uh-huh. he's gonna, like, we'd be like woodland creatures. We'll go like prancing through some far, <laughs> like enchanted fars. So he has us in groups of three. And it's me and these two tall, willowy, gorgeous girls. And he has us pose like Charlie's Angel style. Okay. Super cheesy, like holding our pretend guns, you know, three of us. And it's like... Like, all I could think about, it looked like, you know those, like, gas station calendars? Yes. Like, real cheesy, but we'd be February. We'd be, like, the shortest month, like, because we just, like, <laughs> it's bad. We, but anyway, so we do that. But I know he's giving me, like, the lust eye. Like, I could see it. And I'm, like, trying to send him the message, yes, I will fuck you. I will fuck you here in the ladies' room at the Minscroft Theater if you want to go right now. Like, I was uh-huh. like... Let's do this. And um, he said goodbye to all us. He goes, make sure he had our telephone numbers because you didn't have emails. He takes our telephone numbers. And sure enough, within 24 hours, this dude calls me. Okay. Oh and I'll just call him the dude because I don't know where he lives, but God knows. I don't want him to sue me for defamation. So I said <laughs> the dude and knew the dude would call. He does. And he says, you know, I think the strike is going to be ending. So the Haynes people at the agency are going to cancel it. But it was great meeting you. And I'd love to buy you dinner. And I, he had me at, I'd love to, yes, God. So, and I'm thinking Nikki Arnstein, okay, this is it. This is my big chance. He's really cute. He's really nice. I'm definitely into him. He's not like he's a toad. I like this guy. So um, first date, actually he doesn't pick me up in the car. The first date he has me meet him at a place called A Quiet Little Table in the Corner, which was this super popular restaurant in Murray Hill um back in the 80s and true to with our word every table i don't know how architecturally they pull it off but every table is in a corner like We're with a curtain like four tables there's like a, i don't know how they do it they're like you know what it's like it's like do you ever work in an office with cubicles it was mm-hmm. like cubicles with breadsticks and a curtain and i was so <laughs> impressed with this date he's really nice we're talking about theater and film and then i was really impressed because oh and he told me i could eat whatever i want so i had like shrimp cocktail because i was too poor to ever have shrimp at the time and i wasn't getting invited to anybody's wedding so it was like the shrimp cocktail <laughs> and i was drinking black russians because that was a popular drink oh what's so, in a black russian yeah it's um vodka and kalua Super classy over ice cubes, really gross. And then I had chicken Kiev. Have you ever had that? (gasps) I have heard of it. You want to talk about a classy meal with a rich dude? It's chicken, and when you 
cut it open, it's like Starburst candy, and the <laughs> butter pops out from the inside. Oh, yes. It's yes, like yes, having yes. a coronary with the black Russian and the thing. <laughs> and then he pays, and I'm like, this is it. I'm going to be famous. He pays. He pulls out a money clip. Did you ever know a man with a money clip? I have never known a man with a money clip. It's like the same guy who wears like a bracelet, okay? And he pays in cash, which I thought he must be really rich. He's paying in cash. Yeah. Even though they were all like $5 bills. I don't remember. But it was like, I'm in. This guy. And I was so surprised that he didn't expect me to have sex with him that night because I was used to having sex if I was locked out of my apartment or if somebody needed to borrow a screwdriver, whatever, you know all those comedians in the clubs. Uh, and I thought, well, that's odd, but I guess he must really like me and respects me, which was unusual, but I thought, this is great. He doesn't know me to not. So we go out a couple more times and we're still not doing it until finally, I think it must've been the third or the fourth date, he says, okay, we're gonna have an adventure, pack your toothbrush. Now back in the 80s, pack your toothbrush was what anyone said if you're gonna sleep over. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Which I find charming because I'm now married to a dentist. So now I think that's <laughs> adorable. Don't bring your like yes. your condoms. Don't or bring like, your yeah. Or sponge. Wasn't a sponge one? I once had one of those stuck. I have heard that happening a lot. It happened a lot. I also again I'm glad my mother's not around to hear this. I once got pregnant with a sponge. Oh no. Yeah, and I had visions. I didn't have that baby, but I had visions of like a baby coming out with like a little sponge hat. Yeah. <laughs> I got pregnant with a sponge. It was very bad. Oh, no. And then another quick thing, which I'll tell you. I knew someone who went to Buffalo, mm -hmm. and she got a sponge stuck. So she went to see the school gynecologist. Mm -hmm. This is unbelievable. This is true. I swear to God, this is true. He pulls it out. He takes care of her. She has a blind date the next night. And guess who the, the date is? It's the gynecologist. Did they get married? No. Damn but it. But she was perfect. so, so confused and disturbed by knowing this guy had seen her twat. And the sponge <laughs> before he even walked inside her apartment. Can you imagine? Oh my god. Anyway, yeah, the today's sponge was nobody should be sponge worthy. That was a very bad thing. Anyway, so all right, so he this time he picks me up in my apartment uh -huh. in a brand new Thunderbird, gorgeous, like Shit. reissue electric blue. I was like, Oh, this is going down and I'm going to be I'm going to be Franny Bryce. I'm going to be famous. You're so so famous. So he picks me up on the upper east side and we start driving and I'm a little nervous, he's a little nervous. And we drive now. This is back in the eighties, so this wasn't. This was more unusual then. We drive over the Fifty Ninth Street Bridge towards Queens. Now, nowadays, you'd say fantastic. Where do you live? Long Island City. Great. Mm -hmm. Whatever it is, fine. No, it's NG back in nineteen eighty four because I came from Queens. I don't want to go back to Queens. <laughs> I'm supposed to be moving on up like the Jeffersons. Okay, I'm not supposed to go that way. Uh -huh. So we're driving over the bridge. It's like, oh shit. He lives in Queens, ugh. And we keep driving and driving, and then we're driving so far, I'm thinking, well, what if he's a serial killer? What if he's like driving to Kennedy Airport, like, and there's luggage in the back, and he's gonna chop me up and put me in a bag and throw me in some landfill? And I'm getting really nervous, and we finally pull off in Kew Gardens, which is where he lives, uh -huh. which isn't that bad. And I'm like adjusting my lipstick, and I notice when I pull the flap down that it's an Avis rent-a-car. So I'm starting to get a little confused. It's like, mm -hmm. so I ask him, I go, oh, he rented this car? He goes, oh, yeah, my car's in the shop. And I'm like, eh, sounds a little bogus. But I still want to be famous, and I still know I'm going to have sex with this guy. Uh -huh. So we get out, and I see there's a subway station right in front of his building. I'm like, oh. I can escape. I can get out. We go into this beautiful building. The doorman knows him, so I know he's an upstanding citizen. He must pay his rent, right? Mm -hmm. Then we go up the elevator, and he's on a high floor. And I'm like, oh, this is not so bad. We open the apartment, and it's beautiful and it's bright. 
but there were two older adults in the living room, much older, and they're in bed clothes. And the woman huh. has curlers and slippers on, and they're watching like a game show. And I could see he's shocked. He doesn't expect him to be there. He goes, oh, these are my parents. They must have stopped by or something. And I'm like, oh, my God, that's so – I'm thinking, what a nice guy. Uh-huh. And his mother gets me confused because she says, if I knew you were coming home, I would have heated up some supper for you and your date. Okay, And I'm like, wait, what, what? You like, and your date. What's going on? All of a sudden, it's becoming clear. Something is wrong. Something is wrong. So he grabs me and he brings me into his room. Uh-huh. Um, and like before I can even like like ingest what's happening, he's opening up the hide-a-bed, like the leather bed, you know. And I'm looking around and, oh, yeah, there's trophies like saying like um, <laughs> like from Little League saying like um, uh, good sport, good sportsmanship. And he's got Pippin <laughs> posters and Davy Jones. And, you know, it's obvious this is his childhood bedroom. Oh, my God. It is obvious that this 30-year-old man who has like a full beard and runs casting sessions lives in his his house that he his apartment that he was raised in with his parents in the next room watching Wheel of Fortune and I'm in his childhood bedroom meanwhile he's putting on his favorite music which was probably Barry Manilow I'm not sure but I think it was <laughs> it's like you know at the copa you know it's like sex music and he's starting to get undressed you know we've already had dinner and I'm like wait what? Like, I don't know what to do. And uh-huh. I'm looking around and I'm like, holy shit. And I hear, this is so funny. I, I know this isn't going to go down. I can't because I hear his mother in the other room. Everything's covered in plastic slipcovers. And oh I hear God. her shifting around. So like, you know, the, the sound of an ass on a slipcover oh, that's yeah. plastic. It's and I'm very like, distinct. I cannot fuck someone while his mother is shifting watching Wheel of Fortune on slipcovers in the other room. So I just like pop up. I had started unbuttoning my shirt, and then all of a sudden I started coming together, and it was clear what this guy was. He was a complete fraud. That audition uh-huh. wasn't real. He made up the whole thing to meet women. Oh and I my found this God. out because what happened was, okay, so not to you know bury the lead, but what happened was I tell him, I can't do this. I'm going to go home. I'm going to take the train. I leave so fast. I don't give him a chance to like stop me. I can, I'm so polite because I'm still a nice Jewish girl somewhere down there deep inside, even though I'm a bit of a whore. So I yell, nice to meet you to the parents. And I start putting it together. So he obviously is a fraud. He sets up this fake bogus audition. He runs. Anyone could. They don't vet out the ads in Backstage Magazine. Yeah, yeah. So he's some creepy dude who set this thing up to meet girls, obviously. Everything he said was a lie. I don't know who, what had kind of swindle story. He was like catfishing or whatever you call it, but he yeah. would show up and do this shit. Who knows how many times he did it? Yeah. I, he was a, a crazy person, and I fell for it because I was so desperate and young and stupid not to realize that the warning signs were there. He was always available during the day to hang out. That was a bad sign. Yeah, if you're he working. He never seemed to work. And we didn't have Google. I couldn't check him out. This was before dating sites. Like, if you wanted to meet a guy, if your friend didn't set you up, you had to go to a bar to meet them or find them at a college party or something yeah, yeah. or somebody's wedding. But you weren't. That's why we were all screwing around because you were meeting guys once you had the third drink at a bar. You weren't 
meeting them the way that you can vet them out now. There yeah. was no vetting process, which is really was a good lesson, which I think informed me to become a talent agent because there was like a certain empowerment about realizing that I could rely on lying scumbags, you know, mm -hmm. to not get what I want or I can rely on myself and I can be the my own personal scumbag if I choose to <laughs> and do what I choose to do. But any success I build, I can just pat myself on the back not somebody who had a casting bed or a yeah. good dinner at Maxwell's Plum. So it was a good lesson. So you brought up a really good point, though, that has never been brought up because most of the people that have done the podcast so far only know online dating. That's right. And so after your divorce, did you do any online dating? Um, no, because first of all, I was too tired and cranky because I had three kids under the age of eight. Oh, damn. Uh, okay. And I was running, you know, this business full time. Um, but what I did do was I told my friends very specifically because apparently I still had a lot of self-esteem. I said, only introduce me to guys who have the potential to either run a small country or be <laughs> a captain of some kind of industry. Do not waste my time uh -huh. with anyone who is too sensitive and starving because I have three little kids and I drive a station wagon. And the reality is I live in the suburbs and uh -huh. they have to be into a woman of a certain, I was already over 40 and I wasn't playing around. And plus I wasn't gonna have like a revolving door of men meet my kids or anything. Of course, of because course. Because I was no longer in whore mode. I was now mom, you know, businesswoman yeah. mode. So I did date a lot, because I gotta tell you, and it's very reassuring to the women out there who are listening to this, if you're over 40 or 45 or 50 even, um, and you are intelligent and have a sense of humor and maybe have like nice, you know, job or whatever, no, have to have a good job but just have a good sense of humor and know who you are you have self-confidence mm -hmm. it was raining men i dated a lot of nice guys and you have to have a really positive attitude like men and women both they sense when you go on a date it doesn't matter what sex is this is not a sex thing but when you go on a date and you're with that partner and if they sense not the insecurity but the sad anger are the resistance to wanting to be open about yourself, okay? Uh -huh. If they sense that there's any kind of hostility or cynicism or um, that you don't trust what a person's saying at a dinner table on a first date, they're gonna run for the hills because they don't yeah. wanna be interrogated. You know, don't be Janine Pirro on a date. Like, you gotta be a normal person, you know? Don't go in there like guns blazing, like, well, why, are you, why didn't your marriage work out? It's not that, it's like, we're two nice people. Let's meet each other. Let's figure, find out who we are. And go from there. And, and I really do have a lot of empathy for my friends now who are single. And I have a lot of single friends because they try the online. They do. They are on a lot of those websites. Yeah. And it is very difficult. You know, dudes say um, they're a certain age and they're not. They lie as much as women do. You know, I'm oh. in my 60s and they turn out to be 82 or 83. Oh, my God. And there's nothing wrong with dating an 82-year-old. But if you're, you know, not you're into that, that might not be what you're to be honest about it or the pictures don't look like the people or wow. they're just they have very strong political views that are not your own you know and as we get older you will see you know we do have a I have a lot of opinions about things like you know government and whatever and I'm not like I won't I mean this is a horrible thing to say because it seems like so left-wing but I don't think I could even go to a dinner party if it was hosted by someone who might have voted for the red ass face in the office. Like I, mean, I couldn't even go, not even same. just as a guest at a party, let alone go on a date with that. So I had, um, while nannying, like their family was in town, and, but it was like me and the two kids I nanny and like the family, which was like, uh, it was all men. It was like cousins and then the dad that I nanny for. And the dad, uh, I've been with him for a long time. And he was like, 
you know, he was like, this isn't her her main gig. Like she does this as a favor for us. She's a comedian. And the dude, uh, the one cousin just like that was like, I don't think women are funny. Uh, and I was like, that is why I would never go to a Trump like uh, uh, supporter like dinner party or something. Uh, or when people are like, people can vote for like Trump and still be good people. It's like, actually, they have uh, nah. a huge set of opinions yes. that I don't agree with that they're going to exactly openly right. say. Yeah. Like he said that in front of two boys, impressionable boys that are supposed to respect me and know what I do. Uh, and that's such an old school cliche anyway. Oh, I know. I mean, it's like, really? Really? You think that's like a funny thing to say? I just went, I went for his age because he, at first I was just like, okay, cool, whatever, I don't care. And he wouldn't stop harping on it. And so I was just like, how old are you? And he was like, what? What? And I was like, he was like, me? And I was like, yeah, you, the person I'm you talking to. flower, you. And he was like, I'm 54. And I was like, cool. This is like the most generic response ever of a 54 straight white old dude. That's right. And then he just shut up and he was like, half the people here are 54. And I was like, cool. Um, I have the dad that I'm nannying for and the two kids on my side. So I feel like I'm okay with the future. And then like he shut up. But it was just like the fact that like that was even something that I was like put into. That's right. Or that this man thought he could say something like that. It was just like, go fuck yourself. Go cut off your own nuts. Like no one cares about you. And that's not an age thing because I've and I'm sure you have to have had experiences where I'm thrown into um, every once in a while I'm asked to do more comedy driven shows, which Uh I love to do, even though I know who I am and I know where my place is in the pecking order. And I did this show. I always talk about this that was hosted by one of my favorite comedians. DC Benny and I look out at the audience and it is all dudes on like Tinder dates and they're young girls and they're all they all look like they show up at Trump rallies all of them Ugh. and they're like pounding back um like the what's that beard that you have with the tequila like sure the shots the Miggermeister the Schlickermeister oh like Narragansett or yeah, like, like a crap. PBR like whatever they're just bros and I knew that they were thinking two things when I walked up before he says my name, you know, my old friend, like, oh, she is old and oh, she's funny. She's not going to be funny at all. Like you could just you could see it registering on them. And I wasn't because I let it. I was young in the business, even though I'm an old lady, to let it get to me. Uh Now I wouldn't do that. But then I let it get to me. And. The worst thing that could happen when you do a show like that is get like polite applause and have the other comics tell you you did a really good job because you know that means you must have really sucked. Yeah. Because you don't want people to say that. That means they feel so sorry for you, which I <laughs> I felt sorry it for myself. True. But it's like the worst. Like, oh, good job. It's like seeing a third, three-year-old at a recital turn in the wrong direction. You know, that's what it was like. <laughs> but it was all those dudes out there, young guys, the ones you see at the rallies yeah, yeah. who hold up those signs about like there's no crime and like, you know, you're all like whatever – crazy women whining or snowflaking or whatever uh-huh. and it drives me crazy so i have very strong opinions now uh-huh. um back then when i was young probably not so if i had to be on those online sites now no one would ever date me because <laughs> i would be i'd be horrendous i would just be telling everybody what i think about everything and they don't necessarily want to hear it and you basically found a different way to vet because this time you were like you went through your friends and you were like they can't do this and they can't do that so you had someone vetting like i can't even imagine the idea of not having any way shape or form to vet them as a person yeah like like i have facebook yeah you didn't didn't have facebook you didn't have myspace like the precursor to facebook like that is horrifying do you know how people used to meet people that used to go in classified ads in the back of new york magazine that's they had a section 
personal ads. You oh open God. up the back page and it was straight white male looking for blah, 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 blah. And they do that, I'm sure, on Craigslist too. It was like, I mean, that's where people would meet people that would probably murder them. I don't know. Oh but God. that was how people would do it if they were in a new town or or if they were, you know, some sleazy person who was just trying to get a hookup or whatever. You know, and then because, unfortunately, of the AIDS crisis, mm -hmm. things really did change so quickly. Mm -hmm. because then nobody was having sex with anybody, mm -hmm. especially the first few years when we didn't really know how the transmission could really occur. So people then there was became so really much, different. Yeah, there was so much information, misinformation That's with correct. the AIDS crisis. And then like, I don't know how your thoughts on Reagan, but I feel like he swept a lot of stuff Absolutely. under the rug and made it worse. He and made like, it much and worse. And ignored a lot of people that really needed help. Yeah. So of course and he had a gay changed. son. It's like, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> he had a gay son. He was so patrician in his views. He caused probably hundreds of thousands of deaths that were not necessary. Oh, that is horrifying. Because he, they were doing, I mean, that's why organizations like ACT UP had to get so involved. And like um, one of my partners was like part of like the Pink Panther pussy mob. Like he was like, they would go out. It was almost like Guardians Angels and they'd go out with their pink triangle costumes or whatever. And because it was, there was nobody protecting them and God's yeah. love we to deliver. All these organizations had to be formed because no one in the government was helping. Was helping. And when I first visited friends, when they got sick, I was told that they had gay pneumonia and we would show up at um, St. Vincent's and they would robe us from head to toe in sterile gowns, masks, gloves to go in and say hi to a friend because they didn't know how it was transmitted. Oh my so God. These people, can you imagine being a patient and being really sick? thinking of pneumonia, not really sure, and having your friends come to visit you and they can't stand close and they're wearing a mask and gloves. And like you think I must have like leprosy or something. Like you don't know what's going on. Oh it took God. a while before they realized that they weren't contagious, that we could actually go. My husband, I'm so proud of this. He's one of the first New York dentists who treated AIDS patients. Oh my God. Because dentists didn't want to treat them. They were afraid they'd stick their finger oh. through the glove because they do all that oral surgery. And he's also the kind of dentist who makes house calls to the elderly. Or if people he's have- He's a good person. He's a, he's a god. Like if someone has a severe disability or they're very old, they could be 100 and like half in and out of a coma. And if a caretaker says they're having trouble chewing or they are in pain, he will bring his equipment. He'll even find a way to bring laughing gas, like oh in a god. garbage bag if he has to. <laughs> he will get like in a cab or on, his, on a city bike, he will go to their apartment and he will treat them. Oh Seven God. days a week. Because his philosophy is everyone should have a comfortable mouth. You have to have the dignity of being able to chew your food. I don't care how old you are. And he felt that AIDS patients should have the dignity of a healthy mouth because, you know, a lot of other secondary diseases start in your mouth. So he mm -hmm. thought it's bad enough they have AIDS. I'm going to make it worse by not treating their infection inside their mouth. So that's why I knew he was the, he was the man who was going to be for me. He was the one who could run a small country. Aww. So if you have good friends, they're there to find the... Small country I leaders. This. Yeah. I love this so much. Yeah. Learning so much. Um, it, it really does pay to get old because you yeah. get to learn a lot and share a lot and also experience a lot that you don't realize when you're 30 that you're going to get to experience. And it's all just kind of a lot of magic. No regrets of That's how I so fucking cool. of how I led my life when I was a young person and all mm -hmm. that running around and doing drugs and we used to go to the you know Fire Island and do Quaaludes, which was the best drug ever. If you My guys mom did a few Quaaludes, if you guys ever had the opportunity to find one of those, man, there was nothing like it. So those were the good old days. 
Because, <laughs> yeah, like, I also, I don't know if you were, like, really honest about drugs with your kids, but my mom was very honest about her drug past. Yes. Like, very, very honest. I know her acid stories. I know her quaaludes. She was like, I did cocaine once. Half my body went numb. I fell down <laughs> a hill. Wasn't a fan. Um, but I loved how open yes. she was with it because it just became it's helpful. Yeah, it became helpful. I had it, yeah. I had information. That's right, personal and accurate information, That's and right. it just didn't become. And it also take her off her pedestal. She's your mom. She's a human being. Yeah. When I I introduced all these topics to my kids, the first time I found a vodka bottle in my daughter's closet, mm. which she claimed she thought I was an idiot that <laughs> she liked the it was like one of those absolute bottles that she wanted as a vase she found it at her friend's house I was like are you no. fucking kidding me I said do you know who your mother is and I remember laying it all out and saying you know tried lots of drugs smoked a lot of pot still do they knew I did I said I drank all the time I smoked cigarettes when I was like 12 in the back of a movie theater I mean this is what we did we were like you know like the lost boys you know hanging out in some <laughs> alley doing whatever I said and I'm happy to report that I'm here and healthy to talk about it I said but you might not be as lucky so you got to be really careful mm -hmm. things aren't you know necessarily you know, you do have to watch your drinks. You could get roofied. I didn't know. Like, I said, drinking in moderation. Uh, don't drive. Always call a cab. Never leave a friend alone at a bar. Like, all the things that we grew up with, I said, I've been left behind at a bar. Never do that to your friends. I don't care how much you hate that girl. You take her. You get her, get home. her home. You know, like all that shit. Mm -hmm. So my kids respected the fact that I was honest with them. So they'll make their own choices. And believe me, there was like, I had to bail one out once at jail for chalking a license or something. She had like a fake ID. Or, oh, shit. Like, and my son got arrested for having pot in his pocket on his way up to Syracuse. Like, I don't care. Yeah, yeah. Like, I just got lucky I never got caught, you yeah. know? That's all. I just never got caught. Because back then, I guess they weren't looking to make so much money in the local the police departments. But um, it's very important to be honest with your kids. I mean, why hold yourself up to a different moral standard? You were just human beings. Yeah. You know, experimenting is okay as long as you're in a safe, like uh, my husband and I have this thing where it's very romantic. When we know that we're going to die, like at some point, we want to time it together. You know, hopefully the kids will already be gone. So mm -hmm. when we're really old and we're going to go and the kids are like, aren't really that much, you know, involved in this situation, we want to like find like mushrooms or whatever drugs will be popular at the time. I don't uh -huh. know what they'll be. I'm hoping it's not for another 10 or 15 years. And then we're going to like Thelma and Louise it somewhere, like go off somewhere. We'll leave whatever's left behind, like property or money. And the two of us will just hold hands and skip off on some hallucinogenic, like whatever. Oh together at the same time because I don't want to like have my kids put me in a nursing home and have me facing a wall because yeah. no one visited and they have to pay for it yeah I mean it's not fun to burden your children we're just human beings let's yeah. all have a good time and I had like my my grandmother passed away she was 91 this summer and um we had a terrible terrible relationship my mom had a terrible relationship with her to the point that we cut her out of our lives like uh it's almost will be uh for because we cut her off Thanksgiving so it's either four or five years and so basically, long story short, her last week, um, she got, you know, had to go to the to the ER and they were like, she's got like cancer in her brain, but also oh. like, you know, collapsed lung. So because of her insurance, like you can either like let her slowly go through cancer oh, yeah, 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 or you yeah. can let her like lung fill, um, up, fill up and we just won't, we just won't, you know, uh, what do you call it? Release it. Like right. they won't suck it up. But long story short is like we found out that her life probably the last two years was bad. Like we went into her house and it was just like millions of like pieces of like, like hoarding of kind of stuff? a little bit of hoarding, not the worst, but just like millions of 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 mouse poop and rat poop everywhere. <gasps> 
and just but she had no one because she had pushed everyone away and it was horrifying that her last two years was like that and that her last week was in a hospital and she so badly didn't want to die in a hospital that is so sad or like my friend's grandmother just passed away and she was maybe i think she was 97 or 98 but she was crazy active until like 93 94 like she was playing tennis they're from Chicago. Like Chicago newspapers were like writing about her. Like she just won like some tennis a tournament. But then her last three years, something happened, and she was just in a bed in her oh. own house <gasps> with one of her daughters That's taking care of her. That's a nightmare. Yeah, and you know, you know, she was there. You know, she was like aware, but couldn't talk. And it's just like that's like that. I don't even want to go out that way. Oh like, gosh, no. You want it quick, quick, maybe fun. I want to be having fun. I want to see bright colors. <laughs> see I, music. I want to see music. See Austin Powers. I don't know. I want to see something. Wayne's World. I don't know. Something. But I don't want to be a participant in facing a wall in a nursing home. In general, I am circulating a world of your peers more Mm -hmm. than mine. Mm -hmm. I'm not that interested in hanging out that much with my friends, even though I love them. But I get so much more satisfaction out of spending my nights in really dirty bars (laughs) that I have to walk up four flights to get to. Yeah, And I get paid in drink tickets in a $20 bill or whatever. That gives me so much joy. And I don't see myself as a different age than them. Yeah, Maybe I have different experiences that I can share, but I feel included and I feel they're included in my life. You know, sometimes I tease these people and call them my children, but I love being in that because that keeps me young. Yeah. And that makes me feel like I'm part of your world. I think Anita has, has even said like, Sandy's like my mom. Yeah. Like, she loves you so much. Yeah, she's like one of my girls. I love her. I would do anything for her. Yeah, same. She's such a, she's so, she's so she's great. She's such a good person. Such a good person. Yeah. yeah. When I got sick, she was very much involved in making sure, Aww. checking in. A lot of, you know, it's an unfortunate cliche, but when you get sick or if you're in some sort of disaster, you really know who your friends are by who really checks in and yeah. who wants to help and who wants to take care of you. Yeah. And then all my little daughters were trying to take care of me, which I love because, Aww. and not only my own daughters, but my daughter's in the world, in your world, because, you know, I feel like I, you know, I'm paying my dues to be part of, to be invited to your table. And that gives me great pleasure and pride that I get invited. To me, that is like a a gift. Yeah. It's a gift. It's an honor. It's an honor to have you. Thank you for having me. Of course. Is there anything you'd want to say or talk about before we end the recording? Uh, well, I could be found on a website that I never update called sandyjmarks.com because okay. I'm such a lazy bitch. Um, yes. And I am really excited. I hope people uh, can watch for my new movie called uh, The Fabulist, which will hopefully be uh, somewhere, including maybe somebody's high school hygiene room um, <laughs> starting next year. We'll see. I mean, I don't necessarily expect us to be at Tribeca, but... There's always Passaic. Who knows? We will be in festivals. We'll definitely be in a lot of festivals, so we'll see. Oh, I'm so excited. Well, thank you for coming. Thank you. Love you. It was fun-er. I know. I... So glad you listened. I'm so glad you enjoyed. Rate, subscribe, like. Tell me how much you love me and my vocal fry and Sandy. Go find Sandy Marks and go find the fabulist. I'm sorry, not the fabulous, the fabulist. Um... Go, go masturbate right now. I'll be thinking about you while you do it. Bye.